Hey everybody and welcome to another live booktube session. Uh, today I am chatting with author Sam Alk. Sam, how are we doing? We're pretty good, thanks. Nice good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's like been a long time coming at this point. I, I think we've been talking about doing this probably since I started doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think actually you mentioned it when you first first had the conception of doing the, um, the station. Um, and it's just been a, a long year for us all, hasn't it? Yeah, it really is. It feels like it's been about a decade and in uh, eleven months. So um, I'm just glad that you're uh, you're alive here to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to see you from the other side yeah. of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I know uh, I know we saw each other. What about uh, it's been five months now uh, since since MadeCon? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and even that feels like it was so far away. I feel like it was another lifetime ago. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so um, you know we're here to here to talk a little bit about you know life writing, and we'll, of course we'll talk about Hollow Empire, which is uh, hitting on the first of December. I know that's uh, something you're super excited about as as well as us. So uh, we'll definitely touch on that. But um, I just want to know, you know, tell me, tell me a little bit about what's been going on with you, uh, you know, these past few months, how, uh, I guess since Mayday Con, what, what have you been up to? Uh, well, um, as you probably know, Australia has been a bit luckier than you guys. Uh, with Corona, so. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> A little bit, a little bit. Um, so we've been we've been pretty okay. Like my, where I live, um, we haven't had a we never had community transmission at any point, um, and we haven't had a new case since. Uh, other than a returning diplomat or two, we haven't had a new case since about June or July, I think. So things are pretty normal here. Um, aside from you know the usual things, you can't you know my kids' school doesn't have assemblies and um, there's no free play at the pool and you still have restrictions on the number of people's in venues, but largely speaking, we've been very lucky. So um, I've just been kind of watching the rest of you guys and feeling awful. Um, <laughs> very, very conscious, very conscious that we've got the lucky, um, the lucky sort of situation here. And even during lockdown, it wasn't, um, I had a lot of things, a lot of things which were um, uh, very fortunate in my circumstances because, you know, we have, uh, garden the kids to run around in and bounce on the trampoline it would have been very different if COVID and the bushfires had intersected because I think last time we talked we were only just sort of recovering from the fact that we couldn't go outside for several months uh, which was a really really rough time for, for everyone um, and you know now we're hurtling back into bushfire season again so we'll see how it goes but but largely speaking things are things are pretty much back to normal my everyday life I have to go back to the you know my day job at the actual office again um which is a bit sad, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know the kids are at school and um, and everything's kind of ticking along as, as normal. Yeah, that that's so crazy to hear. Yeah, it's it, it's it's only getting worse here, uh, and to hear the yeah. fact that you guys have been kind of okay since June, July, I'm just like, yeah, I know, man. It's if awful. only we didn't have so much arrogance here in the U.S. Um, <laughs> uh, look, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of factors. Obviously, we're an island. But there was just a lot of public pressure on the federal government very early um, and being led from our states that everyone was very kind of the attitude here was just pretty pro lockdown straight away. Like everyone was quite OK with the idea that, OK, we'll, we'll all stay in and lock down and get rid of this thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Victoria in particular has just done amazing work with with their real sustained lockdowns to get on top of it. Um, 
it's just incredible to see. But um, but you've got to have like you've got to have community support and government support um, working together in order to make it work. Yeah, that that doesn't yeah. work here. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, Unfortunately, it's we don't know how to really, you know, put those things together. So it's yeah. uh, it's a it's a bit difficult apparently for us. So yeah, um, well, hopefully, hopefully things might get better now. <laughs> we don't have like people in charge for much longer who are pretending uh, it's not a real problem. Who friggin' knows? Uh, I'm I'm seeing <laughs> I'm seeing the you know the people that are being appointed in the in the new campaign. I'm just like. I, I just I feel like it's gonna be more of the same or if not worse but I don't know I I feel I feel like it's it's unfortunate because you still have just two sides that just can't get along and I feel like that's just gonna be the thing until I don't know until one side shows that they can be like okay we're all gonna actually like come together and do this but uh, it's like people, one side seems to be okay with every other side dying that's yeah you know yeah. hard thing to overcome yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you see why COVID is still a thing. Um, yeah, it's 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 rough. Uh, I, I try to anyway. Sorry, thank I, you. I, no, you're good. You're good. No, I, I'm, I'm. We're kind of like in our little bubble in Alabama, where I feel like we're kind of on the outside looking in, kind of like you guys are. I mean, we still have COVID and stuff, but you know, we're not. We're seeing higher numbers, but we also are very spread out in the state. So it's not like we're sitting in the middle of New York City where there's, you know, yeah. millions of people within a couple of yeah, blocks. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, but yeah, that's good that, that's good to hear that you're you're doing well. I, I hate to hear that you have to go back to the office. I, I don't even know what that's like anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I got very used to working at home. <laughs> it suited me fine. I know some people were like missing going in and um and I did miss like seeing people. That's that's true. Yeah. Um but but basically everything about my life was easier when I didn't have to leave the house to go to work. <laughs> I can work in elasticized pants at all time and so <laughs> oh yeah there's i mean there is nothing better than waking up in pajama pants and grabbing a cup of coffee and sitting down and working and not having I to know, like get in your car and actually put on real clothes <laughs> you know i know right i used Ugh. to get up um i get up and my kids and i walk our dogs and then we do i don't know if it, i don't know how much it made its way over to america but um uh there was a this thing called pee with joe which was like a a, a guy in um the uk it's like a, a, a YouTube fitness dude um, who started running daily free classes when the school closed down in England. And it turned into this whole worldwide thing. Um, and so my kids and I started doing that back in March or whenever it started. And we've just kept doing it. So so we get up and we go walking and then we um, do like a, a workout um, with this YouTube station, um, which was fine when I could then be like, just stay in my yoga pants <laughs> and do my day job. But now I have to like shower and, you know, oh. back on. I have to put my feet into things that aren't sneakers. It's very disappointing. <laughs> Dad, government, normal life. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like I don't even know like what normality will look like anymore. Like, I mean, I've I've been back. So, like, we in the middle of COVID, we we transferred to a new office, and so we had to go set up there. Well, they only let like two people at a time every hour go in and set up their office. We've got about oh, oh, 40, right. 45 employees. And then since then, I've been back a few times, but there's only been like five or seven people there at a time, which is great yeah. to see them. But I'm like, yeah, it just feels really weird. And now, you know, back at back of the house and I'll still work here. But I'm like, 
it just gets it gets lonely. I've got three dogs, but like at the same time, like they can't talk. You know? No, I know. And they're they're very lazy colleagues. I found with my yeah, team. they really are. They don't do squat. They contributed nothing. You know, I'm, I'm like, can you wash the dishes? <laughs> do something. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I don't want them licking the balls to put up in the pantry, but you know, it's it's you know. Do something. It was really, it was really nice for a while because my husband and I were both um, working from home at the same time. So I like, I had had company, and um, you know, we had the dogs, and he'd go for a lunchtime walk, and it was all very pleasant. But then he had to go to the office. He had to go back before I did, um, oh. and it, it is less, it's less appealing by yourself, I must admit. <laughs> and it's nice going back and seeing my colleagues is lovely. Um, yeah. And it felt really weird at first, but it's kind of settling back into normal now. I think. Um, yeah yeah i don't think i mean i think there'll be a new normal honestly like businesses kind of have to especially businesses like um industry that i work in where you really we've really kind of conclusively proven that we can still work just as effectively from home for most of the year um so there's just not really that kind of um assumption that it can't be done anymore um so i think there'll be a real um a real shift in how we look at at work and working from home, um, which is good, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I work in, I guess you can kind of call it IT. I mean, I, I'm in uh, telecommunications, so I work for a company that, that works on cell phone towers. So, um, you know, we we had like a remote day a week that we did. This was like two years ago. And then they, uh, one of our CEOs like was going business to business and was noticing like absentees. And so he was like, all right, everybody's five days a week in the office. And then yeah. since COVID started, our production's gone up <laughs> because yeah. everybody's working remotely. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, there's there's no way you can tell everybody to come back when when you're doing way better. Our stock's gone up like twenty dollars. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I think there's something to That's this. Right? I mean, we just like the, just the extra time factor. Um, because I know you'll you'll find the same when you daughter's a bit older, but when you <laughs> when you have kids and you've got sort of deadlines for how you got to get out of it at the end of the day. I can just work so much more of the day when it's at home because I can go grab the kids and bring them back and then just sit straight back down at the computer and it's not a problem. Um, and just dropping, you know, an hour's transit time each day makes a difference as well. Um, it just, yeah, there's just everything kind of in my life worked a bit better because you could manage things around the house a bit easier when you are home during the day. And I mean, most of this was for our winter, obviously we're coming into summer now. Um, and so, you know, there's the battle of like getting your clothes out into the light and getting them back in before the window of opportunity ends <laughs> here in winter at about, if you're any later than about 3 p.m. to get your clothes off the line, they won't dry. So you've got to start the whole process again. So, <laughs> you know, it's just little things like that and putting dinner on at lunchtime. So you've got it in the slow cooker or whatever. Um, just some little things like that that actually save you heaps of time and mean you can work a longer work day because you have less home things. Anyway, anyway, I'm still working. Yeah. I'm still working part time from home and part time from the office. So, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I, I I have noticed that it just it just makes the day go by a little easier because you know while I'm here I can do laundry, I can do dishes, yeah, exactly. You know all kinds of stuff. I can, you know, I can read a book if I want to, and I don't have people like walking by my office door going, "You're not getting any work done," you know. So. I don't know, but no, it, it was, it was definitely a lot easier when my wife was working from home too. Cause she, uh, she's a first grade teacher. So they went virtual in March and then they were done in May, but then like, you know, June hit, we had the baby. So she was home till 
uh, right at the tail end of August. And then she's been there. So, so I feel like it's been like September. It's just been like, oh gosh, I need normalcy. <laughs> this, 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 this whole like working from home and being like single dad while she's uh, teaching, it's, it's really difficult. <laughs> yeah, look, you've got a, a child under one. It's, it's, it's a tough year. <laughs> and you've got the added bonus of it being the world's toughest year anyway. <laughs> you've added an infant. I know. We, we really like, we really, really playing on this. hard mode. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we planned this out really well. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. So, all right, let's. Um, look, in some ways, yeah, in some ways, you're yeah. going to be exhausted this year anyway. So, you might as well make it, you know. A, a mentally and physically in two, one two or two or three different ways yeah exactly yeah. um <laughs> so so let's um let's talk about you know prior to 2020 i, I want to know who is sam hawk who was she growing up what did she want to be when she grew up because not everybody wants to be a writer when they grow up and how did you become a writer uh well i did want to be a writer when i grew up uh as oh. soon as i figured out that was that was a job that people were allowed to do um, I, I was putting, I was putting together books, definitely in kindergarten. Um, I was making my own novels, novels, which were, um, like sheets of A4 paper stapled together, um, which I would draw an elaborate cover for and I would write all of the chapter names. Um, and at that, in that age group, I was very, very into Enid Blyton books um so all of my stories at, at that sort of year, kinder year one sort of age group were um were very much uh focused on like a, kids having adventure sort of stories um and they had i don't know whether you guys uh read this much, i suspect in blighton was more of a uk and an australian thing but it's like you know the, the faraway tree and famous five and all of those sort of books um so i'd write really dramatic um in blighton-esque um chapter names like you know Simon gets a nasty surprise uh, or what happened when they opened the box and stuff like that as my dramatic chapter names. And then I'd write like one or two sentences uh, and then I would abandon the project. So, you know, I feel like established <laughs> early on my desire to be an author and also my extreme laziness uh, and poor follow through, which <laughs> uh, was very representative of who I was and continue to be as a person. Um, but I also, um, I, I sort of have no sense of a time where I didn't, want to write books um my I remember my older brother telling me one day that I should be a writer because he was watching with great amusement as I was playing a game by myself um my parents had this huge um backyard and I just used to wander around telling myself stories but I'd be playing a game and unlike you know a normal human child who might be like just just playing the game in their head and like doing actions I would narrate the whole thing so I'd be like crawling around underneath the kiwi fruit um, sort of muttering, she wondered exactly what she was going to find when she pushed aside the leaves. She lifted her hand, pushed it aside. Oh, she gasped. And I was like, writing it out loud like that. Because I was a little weirdo. Um, and yeah, I remember my brother saying, I think you should probably be a writer. Um, so yeah, I, I always wanted to, to do that. Um, and I probably started trying to write proper novel length things. Um, by the time I was in about year three or year four. Um, and I never really stopped um, trying to do it, but I must have at some point in my teens figured out that it wasn't a very viable career financially. <laughs> um, because I obviously at some point transitioned to thinking, well, you know, I, I want to write books, but I'm going to have to have, you know, a 
day job as well. Um, so, so yeah, I never really, I never really stopped throughout my teens. I was working on one big epic fantasy uh, novel, so I think I started at about age thirteen and finally finished at about age eighteen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not fast. I'm not fast, as you probably gathered. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I I decided to. Um, uh, I kind of accidentally became a lawyer, which is my my day job. Um, but it wasn't on purpose. I I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I, I liked doing you know mock trial and debating and stuff when I was in high school, uh, and I was very argumentative. Um, so that probably led me to um, to thinking this would be a fun thing to do. Uh, but like many people who go to law school, um, I by the time I'd finished law school, I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> so I was going to be uh, I was going to be an accountant instead, which was the other degree that I did. Um, and you know, I applied for a bunch of accounting jobs um, and I even accepted one. And I was going to be a tax accountant um, in Brisbane, which is a city up north here. Um, and yeah, I'd accepted the job, and my my then partner, now husband, had also accepted a job up there, and we were we were all set to move. Uh, and then we had like a last minute change of heart. Um, based on a few things, my grandma wasn't very well. I was starting to freak out about leaving the family dog, who also wasn't doing very well at the time. Um, and I was starting to panic about melting in Brisbane because I don't cope with the heat very well. Um, and uh, my husband, Chris, got offered a better job here in Canberra. Uh, and so we just sort of had like a last minute, actually, we're going to stay here. Um, and because we did that, I decided to just take one of the Canberra jobs that I applied for. Um, which turned out, it was one of those, um, I don't really do the same thing, but um, our big government agencies have graduate recruitment where you kind of apply to the agency generally um, and then they slot you into what area they think you'll be best suited for. So I had like a panel interview with about five different areas in the department um, and then they sorted me into a legal area and that was it. I was like, oh, right, I'm a, I'm a lawyer now, I guess. Um, <laughs> So after all of that, uh, you know, doing other degrees and um, and thinking I was going to be something else, I ended up being a lawyer, which turned out to be very good because, um, uh, as it turns out, it's a really good job that I like a lot. Um, so so yeah, I I, I did, sort of focused on doing that um, and didn't do a lot of serious writing in my twenties. Really, um, I did a lot of editing for other people um, and a lot of reading, but I had kind of stalled on my own um, my own projects. And um, yeah, then I had a kid, um, and I think it was when I was home, home, having a year off after um, I had my son, uh, that a friend of mine, um, who's also a writer, sort of asked, prodded me gently about my own writing, um, and I kind of thought, you know, gosh, I'm I'm home, my child never sleeps, so I'm awake like 23 hours a day. <laughs> If I'm ever going to write a book, um, it will probably be now. Uh, so I sort of knuckled down and dug out an old project that I'd started six years before or something um, and dug it out and thought, well, this is, this is actually okay. I don't know why I abandoned this <laughs> after 20,000 words uh, and finished it. And that was what became It Is Wise. Um, so, yeah, having kind of accidentally gotten a different career, I, I came back to what I wanted to do in the end. Um Although I should say, teenage self was quite correct in wanting to have a sensible day job because, 
this would this would be a very very different and much more stressful year if I was trying to <laughs> writing in California. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got here. Man, I just love how you say you accidentally became a lawyer. Like, who accidentally <laughs> becomes a lawyer? <laughs> People, yeah, like there's there's few. Um, <clears throat> the way that the way the system works here, um, you get a like an entrance ranking uh, after year, year 12, um, what we call college and you call high school. Um, we get a, you get a numerical ranking out of a hundred and um, what courses that you're allowed to do at university depend on what ranking you got basically. Um, so I got a very high ranking and it kind of seemed, you know, like you, sh- like you should do a degree that goes with your high ranking. And I still at that point sort of wanted to be a lawyer, I think. Or at least I knew I was interested enough that I could that it would be a sensible degree to do that I would get I'd, I'd be able to get a job with, um, and yeah, so I I sort of tossed up between something like engineering and and law, um, and um, and then just just chose law kind of. I don't know if I had any really strong feelings about it. So I I still think even back then it was more a product of. Um, Oh yeah, that's just a sensible kind of thing to do, rather than being driven by any kind of passion. And like I should say, I'm not the kind of lawyer that um, people think of when they think of lawyers. Um, like I don't go to court or do contracts or any wills or any of that sort of stuff. Um, I just just write legal advice about um, kind of old and complicated legislation, uh, which means that essentially my job is English comprehension. Um, you know, it'll be about solving a puzzle of what this phrase in this of legislation means and what's the significance of this comma and, and stuff. so it's actually very compatible with being a writer because it's it's almost entirely about what do words mean in context and with that particular legislative history so it's a great job for nerds um <laughs> you just sit around quietly in offices and and write advices about commas um and we're all very happy with it. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I guess that kind of helped, you know, with editing too, because you know you've really got to focus in and hone in on certain things, and so you're trying to yeah. figure out, okay, why did certain things happen, or why did this person, you know, in a book, you know, why did this character choose this path, and so forth. So it kind of makes you comprehend a little bit more in depth than just very surface yeah. level. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. They're, they're definitely compatible skills. I just love how you're like, I mean, lawyer, engineering, you know, I, 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 I contemplated engineering my, uh, right out of high school. Cause I had no idea what I wanted to do. And uh, I went through freshman year and I was like, this isn't too bad. And I got a sophomore year and I go, this is definitely not for me. And I went into business and I was way better for it. But of course, you know, I was like being in business, I'm going to do something in marketing. And then I'm in freaking telecommunications. Like, <laughs> This is really what I wanted to do. This is this is what I went to a four year university for. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could have, like I could have gotten more. this job with no with no education and been fine. <laughs> I think a lot more people end up in jobs accidentally than than deliberately. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, I, I feel like there's like you know maybe five to ten percent that actually like pursue you know becoming a surgeon or a nurse or something. You know, like yeah. those kind of professions. And, you know, and there's some that do law. Or some that want to be like in politics, but no, I feel like a lot of people just kind of, or, or I guess a teacher, you, you kind of have to want to be a teacher. I mean, you can, yeah, well, you can, is, I mean, be a teacher, but 
when you're about, you know, when you're sort of 17, 18 and you're being expected to make these decisions about what degree you're going to do, I just think the range of jobs that actually exist is not very visible. So, like, the jobs that you're listing, they're jobs that you're exposed to as a young person. You see people doing those jobs and so you know their options. But mm-hmm. even sort of contemplating being a lawyer, it never occurred to me that there was a job whereby I could just sit quietly in an office arguing about commas because that would have been incredibly appealing to me at all times. But you don't really know that these things exist, so you have to mm-hmm. sort of stumble into them. Um, and, yeah, like, I think particularly if you're, in my case, if you were, like, a, a high achiever at school, there's kind of just the subjects that you take when you're a smart kid. Um, and so you do physics and chemistry and uh, the top-level maths and stuff because they're the subjects the smart kids do. Um, and you don't have to necessarily have a passion for them or anything. They're just you know, sort of expected of you. And then there's yeah. only sort of so many obvious careers that you think of when you get to that point. Oh, what degree shall I do? And, you know, law and engineering and medicine and stuff are the kind of high-level ones that you think, oh, maybe I should do one of those. But there's actually, I mean, there's just so many things you can do in life. I was listening to um, um, uh, the Fantasy Inn podcast um, uh, and they had they had an, an author on um, whose day job is just so interesting. Um, it's about sound design in... Um, uh, in sort of movies and, and TV and everything. And is, that a, is that the one with Essa Hansen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was such, it was such a great interview and she's so interesting and her job is fantastic. But like things like that, they're just not jobs that would have occurred to me as a teenager was a, was a job option. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know how you overcome that, but I think a lot of the time you just necessarily don't, don't you're not in a position to make, to make the right decisions at the age you're expected to get degrees. So I think heaps of people do degrees that are the wrong the wrong thing for what they will ultimately do just because they didn't know what the options were or what they would be like. And of course, obviously, heaps of people are quite different at age 18 as compared to age 30. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, you know, you, you think, you know, at 18, you know, as soon as you get out of college, you're going to be doing exactly what you went in to do. And then, you know, most of the time, as soon as you get your degree, you go completely 180 degrees in a different direction. Um, but with Essa Hansen, I would trade my job for her job any day <laughs> because I, I had her on uh, several weeks ago. And, yeah, it just sounds amazing. She's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I, I just put in sounds for different things. And, you know, and I just get I get sent this list of sounds and I get to decide which one goes in. So I just throw them all at a wall. And if it sounds great, great. And if it doesn't, you will go back to the drawing board and I go. That just sounds amazing, and I never knew I that. I know, job right? Existed. It's such a brilliant combination of creativity and technical skills as well. It's just a, a beautiful um, thing. But yeah, I I just don't I don't believe there's that many teenagers out there who know that that's a, a career option and can kind of sensibly plot their plot their life to to do something like that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Goodness. Also, they keep so, making up new fun jobs that like didn't exist when I was a teenager. So, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, it, it's it's one of those things where like you just continually see things that you're like, oh, I wish I had that when I was that age. Oh, I wish I had that one. You know, like all this yeah. stuff about like coding and stuff. Like you can, you they have toys for like three and four year olds for coding, and I go, yeah, why didn't that exist? Because IT is like I know where the money's at. You know, so, well, but, that's true. I got my I got my son this um. Uh, this toy last year, which is called Turing Tumble. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're like a um, a big sort of a plastic board with, with pegs. Um, and the premise of the game is that you um, uh, you assemble different shaped pieces and attach them to the pegs, and then you roll, you drop balls from the top, and they have to 
map their way down to go to the different slots at the bottom. Um, and it's a way of, it's a mechanical toy that's teaching this kind of thinking that you need for logic and coding. So, um, you know, the, the pieces are like switches, basically. Um, you know, they'll, the balls will hit them in a particular lane, go left or right or whatever, and you've got to assemble a pattern to make them do the thing that you want them to do. Um, so it's like teaching the right thinking, but it's not a, it's not a screen game. It's a, it's an actual physical thing that they can build and, and play with. And it's yeah. such a cool toy. I love it so much. Um, my sons, my sons both love it. Um, and yeah, there's just so many, so many fun things that they. Could, I, I spent probably far too much time during COVID, uh, you know, so do my guilt for being okay by um, supporting lots of local businesses, um, aka doing too much internet shopping. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, now I've got uh, a random freaking for exactly. Um, so okay, so I, I want to know, um, you know, how was your how was your writing process changed from? I mean, clearly it's changed from when you were a little bit younger to you know your teens to now that you you know you've you've written your first novel and now you're about to release your second novel. You know, what have you kind of I guess learned about yourself through writing? besides you know you talk about being a lazy writer but besides that um you know like what what have you learned like what are the things that you know maybe you you used to do but you don't do now or that you continue to do because you found maybe that's a good you know path to, to start on and continue yeah that might be I mean, that might I've be learned, a really loaded question i'm sorry <laughs> I know. i've learned quite a few things uh the question is how many of them i actually apply in practice um <laughs> For example, I know that having an outline is amazing. I bloody love having an outline. I just hate writing them. Um, so <laughs> having had, I mean, sometimes it's a product of time, right? I, I had unlimited amount of time to plan City of Lies. Uh, so when I actually was doing the writing, I had a like a legit scene-by-scene scene outline. And it's just it's so much more. I find, I find the, the first draft process the hardest bit. Um uh, just actually getting the story down. So I know lots of people like drafting and, and hate editing and I'm the other way around. Um, um, so I, I had this beautiful outline that could help, you know, if you can look at a little summary and say, right, in this scene, this thing has to happen. These people have to feel this thing. Um, and so on. it makes it a lot easier to get through the actual putting down of words. Um, but of course, doing that outline, you know, is just, sends me into the kits of despair. <laughs> Outlines are hard. And I'm also simultaneously the kind of writer who, although I don't, I, I might struggle a bit with getting the words down initially, um, I also very much figure out things about the story as I write it, um, which makes outlining quite hard. So so I think I figured out about myself that ideally I need, I need a structure with the large points of the story in it um, but with enough flexibility that I can change things around as I go. Um, I, I do a lot of, I think I must do a lot of subconscious planning um, or else I've just been very lucky because a bunch of times I'll have written myself into what I feel like is a, uh, a dead end and I'll sit there freaking out about, oh God, how am I going to get out of this? Um, and then I will go back and realise that I've laid the groundwork for something already. So you'll have this great idea and think, oh, what if I did that? And then you look back at the draft and you're like, oh, I've already set that up with this, 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 and this. Um, so, yeah, I feel like a lot of the time my subconscious is doing good work, um, although I wish it would let me in on the secret sometimes because <laughs> 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 there have been some stressful moments where <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, yeah. 
so like I, I um my process seems to be different. It seems to be different every book so far. I don't have a long enough career yet to know what's going to consistently stick. And maybe nothing sticks and every book is different. I mean, um, some people write differently for each project they take on. Um, like I'm writing a new project now, which I'm writing in a way that I don't think I've ever tried to do, do before, which is I'm just not writing it chronologically and I'm writing bits, bits of the book, whatever takes my fancy. Um, and that has, mostly been not deliberate but just because I'm tr- I'm trying to do nano uh this month and um I just have so much on I don't have enough I don't have enough time to agonize over getting the words down. <laughs> I just have to get them down so at the moment my very glamorous um schedule involves getting up at 5 30 in the morning um to to get a chunk of words down before my kids wake up at six and we go dog walking and do the school preparation and everything um, to knock some off. And then, you know, I try to get some done at, at lunchtime or in, in the evening. Um, I've unfortunately been a bit unwell for a couple of months now and it's meant that I fall asleep really early or indeed any time my head rests on a comfortable surface. Um, <laughs> that has that has added some challenges and has kind of necessitated getting work done earlier in the day because I often get into the evening and just, can't I just fall asleep I can't do things I'm sitting at the computer and suddenly my eyes are shut um so, so yeah that's that's the kind of process at the moment is trying to get uh whatever words come to mind from whatever bit of the story that I'm writing um and we'll see how that goes like maybe in a few months time I'll be telling you how much I hate past Sam for doing this because I can't reconstruct all of these disparate bits into a coherent narrative um because otherwise I'd always written Strictly chronologically, I, I could not jump ahead to any other point. I had to get there organically. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. City and, and Hollow Empire were both written very differently um, with very different levels of planning. Um, and then, yeah, this this one um, is, is different again. So maybe I have no system. Maybe I just haven't found my system that works <laughs> consistently yet. <laughs> eventually I'll get there. You talk to me in five years, and I'll be like, "Yes, I do this and this and this," and suddenly books are there. <laughs> yes, I just type some words out, and the book is magically done. Yeah, this is, this is my uh, dream. I did say I was dream. lazy. You know, if somebody else could somehow make the book happen, you don't sound very lazy, though. Many, you know, you're up at five thirty, and and you do all the you know all the stuff before your kids go to school, and then you go do your day job, and then you come home and you attempt to write. I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine it because, man, I'm, I'm up at five every morning except for when my wife's off work. And I mean, I'm go, go, go till usually eight or nine. But like, as soon as like my head hits the pillow, I'm out. Like I, I don't know (laughs) how I find the time to do anything. So I I can't imagine attempting to write while also doing all the other things. Yeah. Well, my theory is I just do everything badly. That's you know, one way to do it. <laughs> half assing, half assing a lot of things as opposed to being able to whole ass anything. So, you know, I frequently feel like I'm, you know, completely failing as a writer and a parent and not doing anywhere near as well at my day job as I could and um, you know, just generally being crap at everything. Um but I suspect that's <laughs> I suspect that's just that's just what you've what so many people feel like um, when they're juggling a whole bunch of things, and you know, my my in many ways, I'm I'm in very very privileged existence, so I can't complain. Um, 
but yeah, getting getting everything done does feel uh, difficult. I don't yeah. love getting up at five thirty in the morning to get words out. I've got to tell you, it's not my favorite. Yeah. And I'll do I'll do anything to procrastinate from from things, despite knowing that I'll feel so much better if I just get it done. Um, yeah, like it's like I'm trapped. I'm a lazy person trapped in a very busy person's life, and it's very distressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I know how you feel. Yeah. I- I'm I'm kind of a perfectionist, so that's probably also why I still haven't gotten back to my draft that I started uh, two months ago. Yeah, yeah. I, read, I wrote a thousand words and just haven't touched it since. That's I, I'm like yeah. it has to be perfect before I can move on. And yeah, yeah, it, I, I don't I don't know what is it, and it's you know, and and some of the stuff's a little bit you know. If, there's probably a little OCD in there somewhere, you know, cause everything has to be like right where it needs to be. Like I, and I, and I, I did a lot of, um, did a lot of like proofing and stuff before, um, I kind of do, I started doing reviews. And so I'd read a bunch of indie and I would do, you know, like little proof edits and so forth. So I'm very minuscule about it. So every time I go back and read my thousand words, I always change something. And uh, that's yeah. probably why I'll never finish a book. <laughs> I'll, I'll, that, that, I'll just enter that into short fiction contests and just be like, there you go. Good luck. Tell me if it's any good. Oh, gosh. I feel that very yeah. hard, David. I'm, I'm very much the same, which is why drafting is so slow for me, because I, um, I find it very difficult to write something and then not immediately start judging it and judging it harshly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always been told, just yeah. write all the words and then come back to it. I know, I, go, I can't, say that. that's it's not how my brain works. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting there. You can kind of train to do it, if that's any consolation. I'm trying to think, um, is there a way that you, I mean, that you can just like type something out and not just actually like visually see it? Can you just type and type and type and type and type? And then when you're you done said- typing, can you see it? I think if you there's probably a setting on Scrivener or something that lets you do that. You can definitely or do set it, it all on white mode where it, where it constantly does. Yeah, you can do it on white. Um, yeah, like you, you you can definitely train yourself to get better at it. And I'm getting much better at um, at doing timed sprints uh, in which the competitive the competitive sort of side gets in. That you you know you, you want to try to get as many words as you can in. I, I always do 20 minutes. My, my sister and I are both. We'll often do this simultaneously. So we'll, you know, text each other. Okay, we'll go do a 20-minute sprint um, and then, you know, we'll try to get as many words as we can. Um, and I do find that having having the kind of competitive goal of can I get more words out than last time does help me switch off the, the editor brain part so it stops mm-hmm. me being too critical of what I'm writing. Um, and at the moment, because I'm trying to do nano, um, making sure I get the word counts up. I don't have time in my day. Like my day is just too full and I'm too tired. I can't stuff around. So I just need to get those words out, which means I don't want to delete any words that I've written, <laughs> which makes me makes me move on. So I think yeah. I'll probably this time end up with a draft that looks more like a standard first draft, you know, full of stuff that I'm going to change. Whereas normally my first drafts take a really long time, but they're quite good. Like they're, because I'm stuffing around with them as I go, um, right. you know, they don't, they don't require a heavy, a heavy kind of, they're sort of not, not, there's not a lot of, you know, grammatical or spelling errors or anything in, in them because I'm quite careful when I write the first time. Whereas this one yeah. is rubbish. 
Uh, and, you know, people have been telling me for years how you meant to make the first draft rubbish. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see how we'll see how that goes. Again, yeah, like I can be these... complaining about how terrible my first draft is. Um, but at least I will have one, uh, which I, I think is probably always always best. So, anyway, if you can try to trick yourself into, um, into not editing by having some sort of, um, you know, self-imposed rules um, to motivate you, uh, it does seem to help and you get better at, at getting words out. So I can sort of reliably yeah. get, I can reliably kind of get, um, you know, between six to 900 words out in a 20-minute sprint now, um, which would have been just unheard of for me um, a couple of years ago. I just would have been sitting there agonising over, over words. They're not good words, mind, but they're on the paper. And I quite like editing, so it's not a problem to fix them later. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, uh, you know, I, I just, like, spit out, <clears throat> I think it was, like, 998 words in about 20 or 25 minutes. And I was like, man, that felt really good. Now yeah. where do I go? And I'm just, like, I just daydreamed about where I could go, and there's nothing's <laughs> just hitting. And I'm like, all right, uh, shelve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes you've just got to you've got to be willing to be crap for a bit and and sort it out yeah. later. Yeah, and I, th- I think yeah, it comes from like I don't know what genre I want to write in. Like I I want to write a fantasy novel. I also want to write a horror novel. I also want to write a thriller. And yeah. I haven't quite gotten to science fiction yet. I haven't been like <laughs> space opera. Let's do it. You know. Um, I mean, but, I don't want to say you have to. I don't want to say you have to pick one of those because you can uh, combine elements. But you probably you probably do need to know sort of vaguely what what genre you're writing in. Um, <laughs> I mean, city city is city is essentially a closed room mystery. Um, fantasy can just be the setting that a book is in. It doesn't have to be. Like I mean, I I, I strongly believe it's that just what tour sells. is a setting rather than a genre, so yeah. you can actually have any kind of story. Like it's quite common to have um, the sort of you know the classic kind of epics, um, a sort of adventure adventure travel stories, um, or quest stories. But the setting is is what the fantasy is, and you can have you can have um, well, like in my case, a closure mystery, and you can have horror, and you could have romance, um, you can have like. A serial killer thriller, um, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do while you're sitting, sitting in a fantasy setting. I don't know how to write stories that aren't in a fantasy setting, um, uh. so <laughs> it doesn't seem to matter what what I'm writing. It will end up being in a slightly different world because that's right. how that's how my brain works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so who, um, who were some of your influences growing up and maybe who are some of your influences now in your writing? Oh gosh. Um, Robin Hobb was my favorite writer. She's been my favorite writer since I first read Assassins in, I guess I was probably 14 or 15. And I just remember reading that trilogy and thinking, oh, well, someone's already written the actual perfect fantasy trilogy. Is there any real point? Anybody else try? <laughs> Everybody else um, go ahead and quit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, she has always been my favorite and she remains my, my favorite writer. I love everything she does. Um, uh, her books just, just mean the absolute world to me. I've reread them more times than I've reread anything else. Um, but um, in terms of other influences, um, there's a whole raft of, of fantasy books that came out in my kind of formative years when I was a teenager in Australia, the books that that were put out here, I just compulsively bought everything that was out. Um, I mean, you can see my little collection back here. Um, just just a small like, collection, um, you know. 
Uh, people like Kate Elliott. Kate Elliott was a huge influence on me from the same sort of like from right back then and continuing. She just continues. This, this is my next read um, ah. that I will do once I've finished reading some art. Um, it's Kate's newest book. Um, and she's just been putting things out in all different areas of science fiction and fantasy for, you know, the whole time I've wanted to be a writer. Um, so she's incredible. People like um, the big, the there was a big raft of kind of 90s fantasy in Australia um, by Australian writers, largely women. Um, so people like Sarah Douglas um, and Trudy Canavan, um, uh, Garth Nix, um, Glenda Lark, uh, Kate Forsyth, those sort of writers were all putting books out um, in, in like I said, the years, my, my kind of teenage years and early 20s um, when I really was really kind of, Cementing my love for the genre. Um, gosh, what else did I read obsessively back then? Oh, so many books here. Terry Pratchett was a huge thing. I, my, my Pratchett collection's up there. Um, I just used to, I used to have a standing order with the bookstop, the bookstore. Um, whenever a new Pratchett came in, I, we had this amazing bookstore when I was a teenager in the closest sort of shopping centre that I could get to called Gaslight Books just this beautiful just science fiction and fantasy bookstore um and had a big old like old-fashioned gas lamp out the front um and the the owner was in there all the time and she sort of had the finger on the pulse for everything um so she would always tell tell you what was coming in and what was what was new and exciting um oh jenny fallon too i love jenny fallon um um so i'd spent just spent my entire as soon as I got a job, I just used to spend my entire salary going in and buying, <laughs> buying books at, at Gaslight. Um, but, you know, like I read all of the big the big names of the kind of American and UK writers that, that were making it to Australia at that point, um, even the ones that now don't really hold up so well. I devoured them all when I was that age. Um, I, I think I just used to try to get through pretty much everything. Um uh, these days, I'm much more focused on trying to keep up with, with newer writers um, because there's just so much brilliant stuff coming out all the time. Like, you can't, you can't keep up with everything, but um, just, it just keeps getting better and better. We're in just such a golden age of, of, um, of writers. Um, so, you know, um, uh, people like Shannon Chakrabody and um, Tasha Suri and my friend Devin Madsen and just all these new, new... Shout out! <laughs> Um, there's just so, so many. I can't. I can't possibly shout out all of my friends because there's, there's too many of them and they're too wonderful. Um, but there's just, there's just there's an, there's an incredible variety. Like every kind of story that you could want, um, that just wouldn't have been available to to me as a child um, or a teenager. It's just now, so you can just get your paws on pretty much anything. Like the, the different slices mm-hmm. of fantasy. Uh, it's I mean, it was always a rich genre, to be fair, but what actually made it onto the bookstores and the standard bookstores um, was necessarily curated. And um, and now I just feel like you've got access to, to so much more. Um, mm. And just, yeah, there's just so many so many writers I admire. Um, you know, there's people like Nora Jemison, who's just writing this complete, groundbreaking, amazing work. Um, uh, Robert Jackson Bennett's Divine Cities trilogy just completely blew me away when I read those a few years ago. Um, uh, Seth Dickinson, it's incredible. The Baru Cormorant books are just really, really wonderful. Um, 
Oh, gosh, sorry, I can just keep going. <laughs> now you, you mentioned you mentioned Bennett. I don't know if you've uh, if you've read his Founders uh, series yet. Uh, Foundry Side and Shorefall. Oh, I haven't read Shorefall. I haven't read. Shorefall. I see. I haven't, I see, I haven't read the Divine the Divine series yet. But uh, oh, oh my god, two are. Oh my gosh, David, Divine oh. Cities, Divine Cities. I look. I really enjoyed move it up to TBR, right? <laughs> I really enjoyed Foundry Side, but Divine Cities is perfection. It is really okay. I mean, it's ah. probably a little less. Um, like maybe it's a little less accessible, so it's it's not. I know, like found this, I did really well, and um, uh, it's probably a bit kind of quicker paced and um, maybe more more sort of mainstream market. Um, mm. But the divine cities are just oh, incredible. The, the writing, the world building, the characters, just superb, just really, <laughs> really amazing. I only, I mean, I I came across I came across City of Stairs because. Um, uh, I had been kind of looking. It was at the same time the book was announced um, at the same time ish that I was querying um, uh, or looking to start querying City of Lies, and I was looking for things that I was keeping my eye out for for comp books and books that kind of um, had a mystery structure as well as being fantasy. Um, and so I'd seen um, Robert talk about the book and the fact that it was mystery fantasy you know, on, on social media and stuff. And so I was really, I was like, I was waiting for it and looking out for it. I had it pre-ordered and um, was really excited to read it. Um, so I'd been on top of those from the beginning just because of that. Similar, I mean, the books aren't very similar to mine, but um, but they have that kind of, this is actually a mystery sort of spy thriller story in fantasy packaging. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, I highly, highly recommend them. They're just really, really beautifully written. Yeah, it's I'm funny. You know, God, I'm going to miss people who are amazing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry in advance. People have forgotten to say. I'm, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's funny though. You know, you name all these authors, and and I see all the time on uh, like message boards and stuff. People are like, you know, I I've read everything. Can somebody recommend something to me? I'm like, Ugh. all right. Can can you just like open? You know, like book depository or barnes noble or i mean even freaking amazon and just had in like fantasy books there are thousands of pages of books yeah and i mean and and highly rated books and great books and honestly if you just get on twitter and look at the book community and look at debut authors that are hitting every single year because it feels like there's you know 100 or 200 traditionally published debut books every year and it's yeah, you can't, you can't and like you said it's impossible to keep up and it's impossible to have read them all um yeah but yeah it's 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 astounding and that's why i haven't read a lot of series maybe even two or three years ago because i'm trying to keep up with the debuts yeah. just be like okay this is the one to look out for et cetera, et cetera. Um, I know, you know I, I know i fall behind really quickly and my, my theory is i i buy books um, I don't always have time to read them, um, but I buy them for supporting yeah. the authors and then I will get to reading them eventually. But my, my theory is if I, if I try to read book one of everything rather than trying to um, to keep up the whole series, I read book one of everything and then I fit in book twos and threes. Uh, I like it. I That's what I do. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> because I just don't, I mean, I love I love reading, but there's, there's the pile of, um, of things to be read is insurmountable. Um, and you know you want to you want to be able to read new things um uh debuts that you get as arcs you want to make sure that you read them in a timely fashion so you can blur them and so on um and then you've got 
books which are written by friends that you're just really excited to read and books by authors that you know are reliable that you know you're looking forward to and it's going to be great um and that's just that that's just the circle of like things you have a direct connection to but then there's just yeah. also like heaps of other books that sound amazing and you want to get into um yeah and yeah so for me it's definitely it's not in any way an indictment of a um, of a series of I've only read the first book. I uh, like I've only read the first book of a whole bunch of series that I really love. Uh, just <laughs> timing, and it's yeah. not. I mean, it's not getting any. It's not getting any easier. Um, yeah. It's not because I mean, because I mean, they're just continually coming out. You've got new publishers, yeah. new imprints, and so forth. It's impossible. And yeah, but I, I kind of do what you do. I, I read the first book, and I know I will continue it at some point. But I'm like. But yeah. there's so many other first books I have to get to. I know. Uh, Although and, I, and I'm, my, I'm saying this on a podcast to promote my second book, so I should say, please read second books. <laughs> read them very enthusiastically. It's right there. It's gorgeousness. <laughs> yeah, but see, like, uh, like I, I decided the past like month that I'm just going to try to read everything that's going to come out next year that I've already got. So I read, you know, the Black Tongue Thief by Crystal Christopher Buhlman. Uh, I'm going to read The Two-Faced Queen by Nick Martell. Uh, I'm reading Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. I mean, I'm like trying to get all these things. I'm like, all right, this is like mid-2021. Do it now because it won't happen next year. <laughs> and so I'm like, that's kind of yeah. like my game plan. I'm still failing miserably because I've got so many other books that come out in 2021. But I'm like, if I can kind of get a head, you know, a head start on yeah. it, maybe, maybe I can catch up at some point. But the past like six months have just been – impossible to like actually get through any books like i mean it's it's taken me like a month to read a book where it used to take me a couple of days and i was yeah. like listening to audiobooks like you know one a day getting them done it's, yeah it's, actually, it's, it's like i can't have the headspace the lack of transit time has really killed my um my getting through books because one of the ways that i managed to successfully get through books is audiobooks um so i i'd anything that I really wanted to get through in a decent amount of time, I'd put on audio because then I could actually guarantee it would happen just from driving to and from work and walking the dogs and so on. I'd be able to get through um, through that book. But then lockdown meant that just, I just didn't have that transit time anymore, yeah. um, which really dropped off my audio listening. Um, and I always sort of feel like I'm, I'm always behind on, on something. Usually more than one. <laughs> Usually more than one thing. I, I um, think everybody is. They just don't talk everybody, about it. Everybody is. But like, if I was listening to an audio book, it was because I was doing something else. Um, you know, driving or doing the dishes or walking the dogs or something. Um, so it didn't feel like you know, it's, it's just pure recreation. I'm allowed to do it while I'm getting something else done. Whereas sitting down with a book, even a book I really, really want to read, um, that is a sort of a direct time where I could be doing something that I'm obliged to do. Um, right. So I always feel sort of guilty, like sh I'm, I'm reading, but really I could be at my computer getting more work done. Um, uh, who you needs know, work? It's a direct <laughs> trade. Um, you know, if, it's, if, I'm, if I'm reading, I could be writing um, or I could be, you know, do, answering. Gosh, I, can't you know, I can't imagine if I ever have that problem because I'm like, oh. <laughs> Because like I, I haven't I haven't gotten to the point where I'm like I could be writing right now. What one of these days I'll get there. <laughs> one of these days I'll actually sit down and be like, okay, I'm gonna because I, I, the last few authors I've talked to all said that they gave themselves a year or a decade. They're like, I'm going to write a novel and have it at least queried in this timeline. And I'm like, I just haven't. I don't think I've given myself a time frame to do it. So I, that's why I keep putting it off. So I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have something written by like. 
June of next year, maybe I'll actually do it. But yeah. I just, I, yeah. I, I don't like I said, see a light where I have time. Yeah, you just have to kind of. I mean, some people aren't motivated by artificial deadlines. I am very motivated by fake things. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm easily, mani- I'm easily manipulated even when I quote of the thinking. night. Um, so you know, putting putting um, false th- things like nano work work on me because even though it makes literally no difference whether I get the sixteen sixty seven words in the day, like what does it matter if if I wrote two thousand yesterday, I could be a few hundred short today and it would average out. But no. No, no, because the, the little graph is there and it tells me that's the number of words I have to do that day. I have to do them that day. Um, and it's, it's just one of those completely stupid, arbitrary um, numbers that doesn't mean anything. And yet I feel like a failure if I don't do it. Um, so I do it. <laughs> and it was the same. Like I only, got, I only got City written after having, you know, started it, like I said, six or something years before. Uh, I'm very, very good at procrastinating. Um, and I only really got it because I decided to impose a deadline on myself and say, right, I'm home. I'm going to write this in a year. In a year's time, I want to have at least a, a workable draft that I can start with. But having said that, I then, you know, didn't start querying that book for, I think I faffed around editing it for like a year and then spent some absurd amount of time um, putting off putting off actually querying it Um because of tinkering and, you know, doing obsessive making spreadsheets and stuff, um, anything to, to avoid actually taking the next step. Um, so, you know, I can't, I can't really offer a, um, I'm not, I'm not looking down from the lofty heights of somebody who does not do exactly that. So anyway, I sympathize, but try, try. You're not, you're not talking down to me to tell me this is how you should do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm the worst. Um, and really, no, you know, I just the past. You, you, you have you have written a phenomenal novel, and I have heard that you've written a phenomenal sequel. You have gotten some fantastic words said about you from some very great authors that you even mentioned in in your, your little spiel about all the all the influences you have, and you know, you're mentioned with one of your favorite writers ever, and yeah, I mean, you, you have done something. I've done something. You've done more than I've a been lot. very. I've been very lucky, and I'm. I'm very um i'm very conscious that i've been very lucky and uh, even though it's a weird and difficult industry at times um oh i can imagine you know, i just i can't imagine not doing it um, yeah it's all pretty good, it's all pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of uh city of Lies, so um i want to talk a little bit about it because you know i know it's still it's still probably kind of a fresh read for people you know that that maybe haven't haven't jumped into uh, say maybe they haven't even looked at books that Tor's released or they haven't looked at anything that's been released in the last couple of years. Um, but City of Lies was the winner of the Dittmer Awards for Best Novel and Best New Talent, the Norma K. Hemming Award, and the Ari Alice Award for Best Fantasy Novel. And you are also a finalist for the Astounding Award for Best New Writer in the 2020 Hugos. So again, I think you've done something. Um, I want to know: can you uh, can you tell the audience maybe that haven't had a chance to read *City of Lies* a little bit about the book? Um, sure. So um, *City of Lies* is about a brother and sister who are poison tasters or proofers uh, for the ruling family of a city. So essentially, their sort of secret duty um, is to protect the ruler and um, the ruler's heirs and family uh, from attacks via poison. Um, at the beginning of the story, um, the 
current proofer, their their uncle and the chancellor are both killed by an unknown poison, a previously unknown poison. Um, and so Joven and Kalina are, are suddenly thrust into uh, the roles that they didn't expect to have for many years. Uh, so they're left protecting the Chancellor's heir, who is also their childhood best friend, uh, Tane. Uh, and to make matters worse, during the funeral, an uh, army appears at the gates and um, lays siege to the city. So they are trapped for the course of the story in a besieged city um, with with somebody um, on the ruling council who they believe has poisoned poisoned the chancellor and is trying to poison the new chancellor. Um, and they don't know why they're under siege. Um, and they're basically just trying to keep their heads above water, trying to protect the chancellor, trying to figure out what happened, why the why the country has risen up against them. Um, yeah. So it's like I said earlier, it's a kind of closed room mystery novel in a fantasy dressing. Um, uh, it's big on sibling relationships. The key relationship in the story is a brother-sister relationship. Um, it's not really a standard, uh, they're not really sort of standard fantasy heroes. Um, so neither of them are good fighters. Um, uh, one of them is chronically ill um, and she just needs to use her uh, brains and wits and, um, and thoughtfulness to um, to solve mystery. Um, the other, uh, again, not a fighter. Uh, he's kind of a scholarly, um, quiet type uh, with anxiety issues, <laughs> who is just trying to get his sister and his uh, best friends out of this alive. Um, so there's lots of politics and intrigue and um, uh, mystery sort of elements, uh, rather than being a big kind of magical creature battle sort of story, although there is a little, little bit of that. Um, magical yeah. battle um, type <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be blurred. It's it's not very magically battle-y type. Yeah, yeah. As you can see, this is this is why authors aren't in charge of you know writing their own promotional books. <laughs> I don't think they'd let me put the word battle-y on their cover. Um, oh my gosh! I please. <laughs> I just feel it's important to let people know it's not battle-y, um, and that the main characters are protecting people from poison. They are not assassins because I think. Um, the fact that the series is called The Poison Wars, um, some people mistakenly expected it to be sort of staffed with um, snarky assassin characters, and they're not. They're, they're cinnamon rolls. Um, <laughs> good, good, decent people trying to do their best in shitty circumstances, basically. Um, uh, it's a fairly optimistic kind of fantasy, um, which might appeal to you in these current fun times. Um, it's not grim dark. Um, uh, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got the kind of things that that I that I like in my fantasy, um, like good characters and politics and um, interesting different worlds. Um, and you should definitely buy it. It's on sale for two ninety nine on all electronic platforms at the moment uh, until the it end is. of the month. Um, so you should definitely definitely buy it. Several copies. The perfect Thanksgiving read. Exactly, or you're you know sorting out your Christmas presents early for people. Yeah. Definitely, um, it makes a very attractive doorstop if you don't actually enjoy it. Um, it's a solid, solid book. It is. I looked the complete wrong way, by the way. I, I always look the opposite way of where it's. Oh, I know. I do. It is. It is quite a chunk, and I have two of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that you have two. I highly recommend owning as many copies as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I had to have a U.S. and a U.K. copy. They have different covers. 
they do have different covers and they're both very pretty. Um, they are. I'm very torn with my the, the second one. I don't have a copy of the I can't show you the US copy, sorry. This is this is Hollow Empire, the UK version. Oh no, it's the so only great. one I have. I have one one UK version. Um, I have not yet got UK US copies, so sorry, but it is very pretty. I can say from the photos. Um, it's very nice. I'll make I'll make sure it's the uh, it's it's the cover for the video so everybody everybody knows just how pretty. Oh, it is. Excellent. Well, you can see. Uh, hang on, hang on. You can see the uh, that's the original pencil sketch on the wall up there. Ooh, um, which is awesome. So Greg Ruth is the artist who does the American covers, and he's just superb. He's the best. Um, so I have his I have his original pencil sketches for for both the covers on my wall. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's like a cool, a cool like author thing. You uh, having a cover art on the wall. <laughs> life goals, life goals. Yeah, exactly. Right. So uh, I, I just had to throw this out there. So um, the the first line from City of Lies: "I was seven years old the first time my uncle poisoned me." Like that's like one of the best first lines ever. Just FYI, and I remember when that was <laughs> that was thrown out there uh, before the release and. Uh, and, and I, I think you caught a lot of people with that one. So uh, just just bra bravo for, for that first line. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's all downhill from there. <laughs> yes, all, all, all down. Um, so I, I want to know, what what is it that interested you in Poisons and more specifically uh, having a proofer as a main character? I, I, I When I think back on this, I can't tell you which event – came first I think it was probably just a convergence of things I was thinking about and, um, so I was interested in the, the poison tasting element um, because um, I think there I don't know if you did this in science classes at, um, in America but in Australia it's quite common to do this uh, thing in science where you taste there's a chemical that's in um, uh, coffee um, that some people can't taste and some people can taste is why some people hate coffee um, because they can taste this very unpleasant tasting thing. Um, and that got me thinking about um, how different people can taste different elements um, and people have basically different qualities of, of taste buds and they're capable of, um, of detecting different things. So there are super tasters um, and, and really low low tasters. So if you really, really, you know, you can have really incredibly spicy food and stuff, you might be like a low taster. So, um, you know, you don't get as affected, you don't get as affected by various um, things on your tongue. Um, but there are, there are definitely people who are, who are super tasters and whose taste sense is incredible and um, can taste a broader range um, with more intensity than regular people, um, which I thought was really interesting. And I was wondering whether it would be something that you could like, you know, basically breed a line of people who, who were really amazing tasters and what you could do with that, aside from, like, making really good wine notes, wine tasting notes. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I was like, I, I wondered a skilled, how you could write about a skilled position of tasting, um, and that kind of led to the idea of, well, um, you know, what sort of society would have a... Um, would, would have a need for someone to be a skilled taster. So, you know, there were tasters in, in historical um, societies that tended to be um, kind of canary in a coal mine, sort of, you know, people just being used as expendable. Um, uh, <laughs> Taste this. Expendable. We'll see if you yeah, die. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. See if you die. If you die, it's not safe. Um, whereas I did, obviously that doesn't make for very good story fodder because if you 
Pretty, pretty quick book. It's like a children's book. <laughs> yeah, so I thought it would be fun to like to write about somebody who was um uh, who was able to do it as a, as an actual skilled profession, and that um that kind of led to me building the, the society um that way. So I think I think it was probably just thinking about super tasters um in that in that context that kind of got the idea about about proofing. I think. I gotcha. Probably yeah, could have answered, uh, answered this better a few years ago. <laughs> yeah because uh and i also found it interesting you know you added um you know a new uh like poison or um i guess herb or spice or something you know at the at the beginning of every chapter and you kind of explained its use and so forth that was very interesting too and it kind of kind of immerses you a little bit more into the into the world and into you know what joven was actually doing uh yeah. at least you know at, at the beginning until the story progressed quite quite uh quite quickly it's really hard to say that yeah, twi- yeah. quite quickly quite quickly but it's quite hard yeah um, yeah i like i those, those are figures are really fun um it, it the thing is when you're writing about a poison taster um you have all of these ideas about cool poisoning scenarios that could happen um but you don't really get to use that many of them in a story because you can't i mean you can't have um you can't have a different your baddie's not going to have. I'm going to try poisoning with this poison this week and this poison this week. It, like it doesn't really work as a story thing. Um, so um, it, it's kind of a, it was a really fun. And I must say, this is my agent's idea to, to put those little poison notes in. Um, it was a brilliant mm. idea. Um, uh, so it was a great way of like being able to just say, give me a world building feel um, without slowing the story down. They were just little kind of extra notes um, and. Um, and sort of teaching you a little bit about the profession without having to try to contrive a way to put that into the into the text. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I used a lot of they're all fictional poisons in the in the books um, for a number of reasons. Um, aforementioned laziness uh, being one of them. <laughs> one of them. Um, although I, I have to say, making up making up that many there's a lot of chapters in the book making up that many poisons. Um, didn't end up being a very lazy exercise at all because it's, it's quite difficult. Um, it started getting pretty. <laughs> it was, we we did the we did yeah we added those to the chapters quite late in the piece, so I definitely remember um, being. I think it was like right before it was due, um, like one o'clock in the morning. I discovered that there was a double up between chapters, and I had to write a new one. And frantically texting my sister, I can't think of any other symptoms. Think of something anyway. Um, <laughs> sort of strange by the end, um, but like the advantage of making things up, obviously, uh, besides fun, it's fun to make things up, um, and also it means that I'm not writing like an, instru- an instructional manual for how to poison people, <laughs> which is good, um, and it gave me a bit more flexibility to um, to have the poison serve the story in a way that like I, I based a lot of them on real world poisons, but I didn't want to be confined to making the poisons behave exactly the way that they would in our world. Yeah. Um, because and also like it, it, you know, if you're using only real world things, then there's an element of um, if people, some people who are going to read it, they're going to be thinking, oh well, that's cyanide, so this is going to happen or whatever. <laughs> like you want to you want to leave yourself a bit of room to surprise um, and to have you know the characters figure things out in a way that you might not be able to do if everything is a legit poison. But uh, a lot of I mean a lot of you if you look at those notes carefully, a lot of them you'll recognise as as. Similar to real world poisons, just not exactly the same. Oh, yeah, gotcha. no, they were really fun. And in the second book, um, I didn't want to do another, you know, thirty odd fictional poisons. <laughs> I felt like it a bit, 
might get a bit old. So um, so this time each chapter begins with a small um, historical tasting note. So the extracts from journals of Joven, Joven's uncle and their ancestors, um, just sort of recording the details of a poisoning or an attempted poisoning that, that occurred. So it's like a little, a little historical snippet. Um, and I've got to tell you that was, they were an absolute blast to write. Um, they were really fun. And that was another way again of, of getting in fun, fun things that are world building notes or just like cool poison things that happened in real life that I can um, do a fictionalized version of. And also I got to um, fictionally poison a whole bunch of my friends <laughs> 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 to fill in. Because you needed all these kind of names for, um, you know, people in the past who got poisoned or poisoned people um, or were proofers in the past. Um, if you read those carefully, you will find references to um, other other fantasy authors, and <laughs> some bloggers, <laughs> members of my family. Um, <laughs> a lot of fun. So there's a lot of there's all the private jokes sort of rammed in those um, those chapter notes, but um, they're also just like really fun ways of, you know. Putting in putting in poisonings that there's no room for in the story, but you really just wanted to tell a story about, you know, a poison that made someone walk up so much that they got poo coming out their nose and they died, um, because it's too, too gross and too fun to ignore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, you people are always looking for people to kill off. So I know I know a lot of times you know authors will do you know like. A, I don't know if you really call it like a giveaway or something, but they'd run like a little raffle to like, you know, I'll kill you in my next book or I'll let you yeah. figure out a way this character dies. I think it's kind of neat that you just were like, no, I'm just going to take the liberty and just kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, I did do one of those. So um, oh, uh, one, of my readers got, one of my readers got poisoned um, as part of the fundraiser when we were fundraising for um, raising money for bushfire relief um, in Australia. Um, we gave away, I organized a, a giveaway um, for a whole bunch of really awesome fantasy authors. We all chucked in books um, and people bid on the package and stuff. But one of the things that I chucked up for bidding was the right to be to be poisoned off in one of my chapter headings. Um, so That's awesome. <laughs> the, lovely, the lovely Catherine um, has been poisoned off in, my, um, in my, one of my chapters, which is really fun. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so I wanted to ask... Uh, you know, it's kind of implied throughout the novel that Joven is on the spectrum. Is that is that true? Is it just an anxiety thing? And if so, you know, was that like a kind of a sticking point when you created his character arc? Um, so I see Jove as as having OCD or something very like it, um, uh, which manifests in a lot of anxiety symptoms. Um, uh, he he kind of came to me like that. So um, he, he I never thought of him as as anything other than how he came out, essentially. Um, and OC look, OCD is a tricky, a tricky one because um, it has so much bad representation in media. Um, you know, you often see it, it's one of the more commonly portrayed mental illnesses in television, in particular. But it's portrayed in a lot of really annoying, damaging ways. Um, so you often see it sort of uh, used as a substitute for like people having no social skills but being a super genius, for example, um, or just like really surface level things like, oh, they're really clean or they have to line things up in a particular way. Um, and, you know, OCD in reality is a really horrible crippling condition that um, just makes life very, very difficult. Um, and I wanted to try to portray some of that in Joven um, in the way that his 
in the way that his conditions affect him um, and the intrusive thoughts that he has to deal with um, and the way that that ritual kind of um, helps him get over sticking points where something is um, something is kind of driving him wild. Um, yeah, so no, I, I wanted him to... That was, that was how I conceived him in the first place and um, it was important to me to to portray that well um, and um, yeah one of the one of the things that I've really um, liked best about the process of having released a book um, is kind of seeing people um, responding to um, Joe's OCD and Kalina's chronic health issues um, because they don't get a lot of portrayal in fantasy um, yeah and yeah so people people have written to me telling me that they sort of saw themselves represented for the first time um, which really means a lot um, and yeah that's, that's probably one of my favorite things about having done the books is, is kind of seeing seeing that it really meant something to a bunch of people um, yeah to get it done. yeah that's awesome yeah yeah and, and I and I agree you, know, you don't really see that a lot at all um, you know you may you may see it you know, once or twice a year, maybe in between fantasy and science fiction. Um, sometimes it's not really in your face either. It's sometimes kind of like a secondary character. So the fact that you kind of brought them to the forefront, uh, I thought was very interesting. And I feel it makes them, you know, a little more memorable um, because, you know, they're not your standard cookie cutter type character in a fantasy novel. That's, and, you know, you even mentioned at the beginning how they're not, you know, the strongest, they're not, uh, the the you know, the smartest, etc. But you know yeah. they kind of eke out a living, and they kind of get, I guess you would say, stronger as the novel progresses. Um, but they kind of, you know, they kind of find a place in your heart early on. Uh, you know, and and it's it's pretty great. So I I, I commend you on on doing that. That's you know it's I, I know it can, and it can be and it can be difficult. Um, but you know I think you portrayed them in such a way that you know, like you said a lot of people. Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll reach out to you, and I think that's kind of awesome that they did. So yeah, like don't get me wrong, it um uh it can be hard because I think we're really programmed, and fantasy's very guilty of this. Um, uh, it's really hard not to solve problems with violence all the time. <laughs> so having characters who aren't who aren't sort of by default um fighters or um or you know super assassins or whatever um or magic users um. It means that you kind of have to think about problem solving big, big kind of world threatening issues in a in a slightly different way. Um, and you know, media look media t- kind of teaches us uh, that you know fighting is the way out of problems a lot of the time. Um, and you know, fantasy has, relies a lot on 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 big battles and um, you know, big magic and and violence um, mm. and. Like, um, don't get me wrong, I enjoy, very, I enjoy very much um, a lot of this. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a martial artist, so, um, like, writing fight scenes is a, a, something I really enjoy. Um, uh, and it was a kind of a, a fun challenge to have my characters um, get involved in altercations that, um, uh, that can't, they can't just sort of battle their way out of um, using their fist <laughs> and writing writing uh, fight scenes with a character who's not um, who's not a fighter um, and making them still fun and realistic um, uh, is is a challenge, but it's, it's a good challenge, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. That you just, you just kind of helped me figure something out. So, you know, this, this little, uh, this little con that we're doing at the end of January, uh, I think I've I think I've got a panel for you now that that you oh, mentioned awesome. that uh, I think I'm going to put you on the uh, the the SFF Fight Club panel. Uh, oh, they're, yeah, there there uh, there were. I don't want to make the panels too big, but I, th- I think we're just going to have to add you in. I mean, you, you'll be on there with like Evan Winter and uh, Rob Hayes and Alexander Darwin and a few other people because uh, because we're we're basically just going to talk about fight you know fighting and uh, you know, basically you know, battles in, in fantasy and science fiction and just kind of like the mechanics of, uh, you know, made it from sword fighting to hand to hand combat stuff. I, I think, I think you'd be pretty uh, good. Awesome. So, that sounds great. So, I, love, I, I love this stuff. That was, that was a pretty easy connection. So awesome. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to jump from, from the top. I felt really bad. I was at, um, I was at a, uh, uh, supernova here it's, it's sort of like a comic-con sort of thing like a big pop culture festival um and um i was chatting to some guys after a panel um and they were really excited that um i can't remember how it came up but the fact that i was a jiu-jitsu instructor came up uh and so we were talking there were a bunch of guys who, who do jits um and so we were chatting like really enthusiastically about jiu-jitsu and um having a great time and then they were all like oh i can't wait to like read your book and i'm like a lot of jujitsu with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's some. <laughs> I feel bad. It's not actually a super fighting kind of book. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they're real. Oh, I promise God. the fights. I promise the fights in the books when they occur are realistic, um, but um, they may not be kind of like big, big set piece, dramatic ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, in city, and then. Can continue to hollow. Um, did you find it difficult juggling the duo's tenacity to solve, you know, the murders, uh, keeping the city from falling to a rebel army, also outwitting career politicians that you know are way older than them, and then also surviving their constant threats to their life? I mean, did you? I have to imagine you found it just a wee bit difficult juggling all that. I don't. I, I've got a problem, David. <laughs> I always, I always make things super complicated. I was just um, like I had when I was writing a proposal for this new book that I'm writing. Um, uh, uh, my editor looked at it and was and was like, "There's a, there's a lot going on. Maybe you pare back the complication." <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. My instinct is always to um, to do something and then think, "What what could that be? What could that be hiding?" Um, like what this action, what could that person be lying about in this in this sort of scene? What's the surface level thing we're we're discussing? What could really be going on behind the scenes? Or um, yeah, I just I love complicating things. People are complicated, um, and I I just find it really difficult to pare back sometimes. So um, you should have seen the original draft of City <laughs> if you think if you think this um this version was complicated. I had to substantially cut down um, uh, some storylines, remove others entirely. Um, a few people survived City who didn't originally survive City, so they should be grateful <laughs> to me um, because their extra murders, their extra murders were um, were too much. Yeah, so my instinct is to write too complicated, and then my agent and editor will um, just 
back a little bit. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll gently tap you on the hand and be like, "Okay, we're going to uh, we're going to cut this a little bit." I know, I know. I mean, how, how long? How long was your first draft? Uh, I've city. Um, I actually don't know how long the first draft was. When I queried it, it was a hundred. It actually got longer in edits um, compared to the version that um, that I sold originally. Um, so it was. I think it was one hundred and sixty thousand words when I queried um, queried it back in the day, uh, and then it ended up about one eighty five when it was published. I think um, probably the first draft that I wrote that no one ever saw really was um, probably north of 200 um, when I first wrote it and had to be cut back. And then the first draft of High Empire was 300,000 words. Good night. Too many words. That's a lot of words. (laughs) Did you use the entire encyclopedia? This is what happens when I'm left to my own devices. I can't be trusted. Um, and this is why wow. having an outline is amazing because um, if, if left to my own devices, I will apparently write 300,000 words. Um, yeah, yeah, I do, I do overcomplicate things. Um, That's all the words, man. That's all the words. It is, it is all of the words. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend that as a, as a drafting process. Don't, don't write 300,000 word books that you then have to like cut Good in half. <laughs> wow. Um, Imagine publishing that. It would be like an insane. I mean, it's a pretty chunk anyway. But three hundred thousand words is, is just. I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think. I have I have a book that's even close to that. That would be a chunk. I mean, maybe. I mean, probably some of them. Probably maybe some maybe of them like are. a Sanderson. Yeah, that'd be like a Sanderson chunk. Probably some of the um, Game of Thrones ones that uh, ones well, definitely from north of two hundred. Um, in that pile, I mean, even, even I mean, even some of those like just aren't aren't quite that big. But that is not that is that is, that think, is um, too many. I think Empire of Gold, Empire of Gold must be. Ooh, I think that's about two forty. Um, so that's pretty big, but you'd have to be even bigger again. Justin <laughs> Cole wrote a book um last year, uh, Master of Shadows, I think. Um, which I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure is in the. I I, Master of Sorrows. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Um, I'm pretty sure the sequel to that he said on Twitter is some insane amount. Yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, yeah like yeah. My, it was like 900. I think he wrote like 900 pages or something. So my 300,000 draft is it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Hollow Empire is now exactly the same length as City. They have literally the same number of pages. Um, uh, so they are equally chonk, and they will match perfectly on your bookshelf, and you will not have to get through 300,000 words. I promise. <laughs> so speaking speaking of hollow um i want to know what what can we expect in hollow and how do our characters how have they how have they grown up since city of lies um well they have they have grown it's set a few years after the events of city i'm going to try to do this without spoilers um so it's set a few years after the events of city and the kind of world has settled into a new normal um uh and jove um, has taken on a new apprentice into the future. Uh, so uh, he is having to grapple with kind of parenthood, I guess, um, learning to sort of reconcile the um, the obligations that he has as a proofer, um, training the next generation of proofer um, with his kind of role as a guardian of a, a 13-year-old girl. Um, so he has to kind of grapple with a lot. A lot of follow is, is about um, is about grappling with 
with parenthood and what you owe the people you care about um, and how you balance that with obligations that, that put them in harm's way. Um, uh, so the city has kind of, you know, found a new normal and stabilised and they're still kind of grappling with uh, how to make reparations for, again, this is quite hard to do without spoilers, how to make reparations for the things that came out in the last book. Um, uh, but the ultimate big bad is, is still out there. Um, Joe and Kalina are still worried. The book is set during a large spring carnival, um, uh, kind of like a Olympics and carnival kind of scenario where every, the city's full bursting with people from other countries um, and from all around their own country, um, all here for this big, this big festive event. Um, Joe and Kalina and Tane are pretty convinced that um, their enemies are going to use this as a chance to strike again. Um, but everybody else is sort of trying to move on and thinking that they're probably just clinging to the, um, the mistakes of the past a bit. Um, so there are new villains and old villains and um, new threats, uh, but essentially the same sort of flavour of our, our, main, our main characters um, trying to solve a mystery, um, identify treacherous parties among the visiting signatories and nobles, um, work out the identity of the, the person who sort of orchestrated the events of the city, um, and it all kind of comes to a to a head in this in this festival. Um, so yeah, there are assassins and witches and new magic and old magic and um, yeah, lots of um, poisonings and the usual kind of um, mystery and politics and stuff that uh, that was in City. So hopefully, if you enjoyed City, I think you will also also enjoy Hollow. Fantastic. Yeah, and according to Patrick Leo, we're all going to love Hollow Empire because he says it's better than City. So, and I and I trust him. He is he is one of the only reviewers that I trust every single word he says. So if, if he if he says it's better, then I know that we're in for a real treat. So. Oh, that's very sweet. Um, so far, yeah, as I said, touch wood. So far, people seem to to dig it, um, uh, which is really good because it's very hard to have perspective on your own work. And it was a long time coming, obviously, and there were quite a few um, hiccups in the <laughs> the road to getting it out. So, um, it's it's really it's really awesome to see people responding to it, and um, and uh, yeah, I hope people will pick it up, and hopefully, people who um, who hadn't had a chance to pick City up can get it now on sale in time for Hollow Empire to come out. It's a complete, it's a complete duology as it is. Um, but you know, if you buy lots of copies, there could be a third. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you do you feel like the story is over? I mean, I know you, I know you said it's a completed duology. I mean, do you do you feel like there's another one in there somewhere? Another uh, story. Look, it's, it's it's hard it's hard to write in these sort of circumstances um, because. Uh, it has to be both the end of the duology because that's what I was contracted for. Um, and if there are no more books, I wanted readers to be able to be satisfied with the, with the story as it was, um, but also leaving open the possibility of, of more. So, um, so the story is, is, it can be done, but um, doesn't have to be done basically. Um, I like that answer better than like, I can't tell, I can't say anything. I'm not, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's all. That's all I always get. I always get. Oh, I can't say anything. You know, you know, contracts are obligated. Oh, no, I can say. Yeah. Look, I there is a third. There's a third book um, outlined, uh, which I may or may not get to write at some point. Um, it sort of entirely depends on um, on how these ones kind of do. Um, 
So uh, you know, if you're the kind of reader who doesn't want to pick up a series until it's complete, then it's complete and it's, it's done. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a cliffhanger. It's not a cliffhanger or anything. So it's it's um the main the main mystery of the story of the fans, the two of them is is solved and done. Um, but um, I certainly have more ideas for the characters, um, which I would be very happy to to write about. But um, yeah, it's not left on a cliffhanger or anything. I gotcha. That's awesome. Well, let's see. Let's see that cover one more time. Since I know you've got uh, I know you've got the the non US cover. Yeah, oh, non US so cover. It's very it's very pretty. It, looks it is. Very, sorry, I'm very bad with the camera. Uh, <laughs> it's lovely, and, lovely and rich and golden. Um, Absolutely. And it's. It looks very oh, hang on. It looks very nice next to the city. The two of them together. See? Oh, it does. Oh, look at that. Very pretty. Very yeah, nice. yeah, they're very, very nice. nice. Very nice. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry yeah, I can't wait to you with cover, but it's very pretty as well. Um, uh, yeah, I've been very, very lucky. The cover gods have been very kind to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, uh, Hollow Empire hits. Man, it is just like in a few days on December first. Yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, God. Right. And I'm, if you're in the UK or Australia, you can buy it tomorrow. Yay. I guess I guess I need to go ahead and get a flight. I'll go get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam, I uh, I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to come chat with me. I know uh, I know the 17 hour time difference is uh, can, can, can definitely throw people off, but it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I know we'll be talking more in just a couple of months so uh yes and just a little bit of a spoiler yes we're gonna do another virtual convention at the end of january we're gonna do it uh the 25th or the 29th we're gonna do a whole week of panels we've got uh gosh i think we've got 75 authors signed up this time around where we only had 35 last time so wow. it could be a bit bigger um you're gonna have think, a busy week yeah uh, luckily i've got like five other people set to do panels so i don't have to do them all um but uh yeah we're gonna have i think 15 panels and then we're gonna have a, a three or four day D D session going on with uh several oh, wow. authors so oh it's gonna be big uh i mean they're even uh, like uh, uh brian anderson's even like talking about opening up like a store like a storefront i guess people can go like buy the books where the authors oh, like, wow. are gonna be on the panels and stuff yeah it's gonna be like stupid and i'm like why am I still doing this by myself? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very yeah, glad you've got help. That's awesome. Yeah, you, but, but I'm glad you're going to be on there, uh, just like we had during MaydayCon. Um, but yeah, we're going to do like two to three panels a day uh, throughout the whole week. We may extend it to Saturday if it just needs to be, but it's going to be awesome, and, uh, and 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 I hope you're looking forward to it because I know I am. I, I, I always I always enjoy the chance to talk to you. So. Um, but everybody, if you haven't read City of Lies, uh, like 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 she was saying, it's two ninety nine on Kindle uh, until the end of the month, and then Hollow Empire hits the beginning of next month. So it's a quick one two punch. You can get both of them, finish out the duology, uh, and then we definitely look forward to what you got coming next. Thank you so much for having me, David. It was lovely. Absolutely. To talk to you. Thanks uh, for watching, everyone. To you as well. <laughs>